Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on Sunday, May 23, 2021. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for this evening's podcast. This, uh, this week, we're experimenting with a new idea that our political director, Tim Cotton, and I discussed after we recorded last week's podcast. If you recall, during the last week's podcast, we talked about critical race theory And after we concluded our discussion, we turned off the recording equipment and then started talking for another 30 to 40 minutes about a wide range of interesting political topics. And toward the end of that conversation, we realized that we probably should not have turned off the recording equipment because we could have uh, gotten another podcast out of it. So that got us to thinking, why not record some open rap sessions where we can talk about anything related to the Alliance Party? So here we are. Today, we're going to have an open wrap session with Jim Rex, the Alliance Party's National Chair Emeritus. Jim was the National Chair until vacating that position at the end of 2020. He has appeared many times on the airwaves here at the Alliance Party After Dark, and his voice is always a welcome addition to the podcast. In fact, Jim was the first guest on this podcast. So let's get started. Jim, uh, it's great to have you back on the podcast, and thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, it's great to be back, Dan. It seems like it's um, been a while. I guess it's been a, what a couple of months anyway. But um, yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it feels familiar and it feels uh, hospitable and warm. So yeah, thank you for the invite. Well, every day feels like a couple of years to me right now. I tell you, but uh, <laughs> um, so I'd like to start with some personal observation. Um, Across this nation, there is an awakening consciousness regarding politics. We've seen this particularly since 2016. Uh, People are really engaging more and paying more attention. Perhaps in response, the conservative party, the GOP, is starting to feel some heat. And I I believe that the extreme conservatism in this country, and I I associate extreme conservatism with the GOP because I realize that doesn't describe the whole party, but that seems to be the direction that the party is going in. Um, the extreme conservatism in this country is being abandoned by people as a result of the shifting demographics. And as a nation, we're seeing a younger generation come of age, and they have different ideas that are, for the most part, more inclusive, more progressive, and less conservative, at least socially speaking, anyways. So, I mean, you'd think that in order to remain relevant, the conservatives would try to appeal to this new and growing demographic, but they seem to be doing just the opposite. Um, In a recent article written by Jay Rosen, well, it was actually written on November 1st of last year, just before the elections, and it was published on PressThink.org. He says the GOP is an increasingly minority party, but as it grasps for relevance in this shifting world, it refuses to adapt, and instead it doubles down. And they double down by gaslighting reality, um, accusing the press of censorship. It pushes a narrative of victimhood using the cancel culture to label anything that runs counter to their narrative. And to a large degree, they intimidate the media by demanding equal coverage. And Rosen goes on to say that to a large degree, the press has acquiesced in this argument by continuing to talk to people on the right who push their false narratives and promote Trump's lies as genuine reality. And, and also, in addition, as we speak right now, the Republican supermajorities and state legislators across the nation are pushing for major reforms that will result in voter suppression and implement policies such as unconditional support for police, 
uh, and this is intended to counteract the tendencies of the growing majority. With all that in mind, here we are, the, the, the Alliance Party has its own platform that calls for political reform. And I'd like to talk about that a little bit. I mean, the political reform runs counter to this extremist conservative view. The platform includes things like eliminating barriers to participation in the democratic process, making democracy truly representative, ensuring the integrity of elections. And I, my personal favorite, and I think the most important one, is demanding a new breed of public servant. So I know it's kind of a long-winded question, Jim, but do you think this platform uh, that the Alliance Party has, uh, the political platform, is strong enough and principled enough to appeal to the majority in this maelstrom of discontent we're experiencing these days? Well, as I said a minute ago, it's been a while since I've been on the program, Dan, but uh, your questions haven't gotten any easier um, <laughs> <laughs> or less comprehensive. Um, well, I was long-winded. But, uh, I apologize uh, for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they're they're great. Embedded in that in that statement that you just made are, is so much. Um, you know, people have expressed sympathy at times uh, to me personally, and I'm sure you've heard it too. About boy, it really must be difficult to try to launch a new national competitive viable option, new choice mm-hmm. for 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 the American voter, and it is. It's extremely difficult. Lots of obstacles. Um, and they've been put there, most of them premeditatedly, as we all know, by the two parties who want to sure. maintain their monopoly. But I think I, I'm beginning to think that what we're doing is perhaps um, in some ways easier and certainly more pleasant than what the leadership in the Republican Party is trying to do right now, which is basically to save a party um, that has been in the past, the very recent past, very competitive, even though it is a minority party. I mean, I think they've only won the popular vote in presidential election once in the last seven elections, something like that. So, you know, they are a minority party, and the demographics are working against them, as you just mentioned, but the younger generations especially. And so they're trying to figure out how to hang on and still be competitive and it is mostly, in my mind at least, it's mostly being driven by the phenomenon of career politicians, who, mm-hmm. by the way, are in both parties, Democrat and Republican. But in the Republican Party, um, they have this new phenomenon called Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have this one person who threatens them um, on a on a very uh, real basis in terms of their ability to get reelected and stay in office right. and so to not to not go along with him on anything raises that specter for these career politicians so i think they know the party is in trouble i think they know that they're not responding to the majority of american voters and that that trend is going against them it's not going in, in the right direction mm-hmm. therefore they're trying to suppress the vote and you know try to make the odds better for them. But they're driven by um, really thousands, not just hundreds, when you count local uh, elected officials who are in partisan races across our country. Mm -hmm. It's countered by these people who are desperate to stay in office. And they've created their own Frankenstein. You know, the the Frankenstein monster, if you remember the legend, after Mm -hmm. it's created, the first thing it kills is its inventor. And, And so they... They've created through gerrymandering and, and other techniques this very um, 
solidified homogeneous base, which determines in the vast majority of cases who gets to stay in office and who doesn't because of the influence they have in their primaries, because they've designed their primaries right. to cater to this increasingly homogeneous space called, you know, through gerrymandering. So they're between a rock and a hard place. They, they see a party that as a party, and certainly the leader, the, the moment, the, the leader of the moment, Donald Trump, they can't win with him. They can't win with these policies. Mm-hmm. They also can't win without him. Yeah. And, and that's what their, you know, their survival on an individual basis in terms of staying in office is the primary consideration. And you've heard me go on and on about this before, about career politicians. I mean, having been a politician, having been in office, uh, you know, I've seen, I saw it up close and personal. It is the priority. If you're a career politician, the most important thing to you, by definition, is to have a career in politics, which means you have to get reelected. Yeah. And so we see this incredible hypocrisy. We see the Lindsey Grahams of the world and, and you know, all of the other Republican leaders. And we see Democrats do it, too, but not to the extent we've recently seen it with Republicans say one thing on the record. And sometimes within just days or even hours, say the opposite thing on yeah. the record, yeah. as, as if the entire country has amnesia, like we're either too dumb or we're too addled to remember what they had just said and that mm-hmm. this is the contradiction. And yet they do it and they do it and they get away with it and they get reelected because they're showing allegiance to this um, unusual personal force called Donald Trump. I think it's temporary. I think it will start to wane. But while he has that power um, to affect the political careers of these career politicians in his party, they, for the most part, will do his bidding. There'll be a few who will break ranks, and that probably will increase gradually. Mm-hmm. But as, as long as he has that, that power to do that, and he died in my state, I live in South Carolina, uh, we have a congressman, Tom Rice, who you know who voted against Trump, voted um, you know, to um, to impeach him and every, and and, mm-hmm. and voted uh, to hold him responsible for what happened on January 6th. Well, Trump will be in South Carolina in, in 2022 when Tom Rice and the others who did not toe the line. There's, as you know, there's probably a dozen to 20 of them that have already been um, identified by Trump and his people. Yeah. He will be in this state campaigning against Tom Rice. And and he'll probably he'll probably at least as things stand now in this state he'll probably ensure that he will not get reelected, and that'll just strengthen the fear and the, the you know the stranglehold he has on these politicians. Yeah. So that's that's the dilemma that the Republican Party has right now. And um, I, uh, as I said, I think I'd rather be dealing with the um, challenges that we have than dealing with the challenges that that presents for that party. So does uh, South Carolina have uh, open primaries, or is it a closed primary system there? Do you know? No, it's it's open primaries. Okay. Because that's one of the— Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I I think I know where you're going. (laughs) I think you already know where I'm going, but just to to explain it, open primaries um, allows allows you to select— allows everybody to select a 
a candidate for for a primary as opposed to being closed where only people within the party can select a candidate for the primary. So when you have open primaries, it's a little bit more difficult for Trump to go in there and try to uh, out-primary a candidate. Is, did I get that right? Well, you got it right. I mean, in our state, you can vote in either the Republican or the Democratic primary. You can't vote in both. So each election cycle, you can pick one or the other. Got it. So it still limits, yeah. still limits you because you might, you know, a lot of Americans and hopefully more and more in the future will want to pick candidates in multiple parties yeah. uh, during the primary process, not to be limited to one. But in our state, you can pick either one of those. Yeah. Um, if if the Democrats run so, someone, for example, against Tom Rice, um, the dilemma will be for for the uh, partisan Democratic voter. Do I cross over and vote Republican for Tom Rice or do I stay true, quote unquote, to my party and vote for the Democratic challenger? And people who have argued against open primaries have often used that scenario as an argument against it, that you will have people from the opposite party voting in, quote unquote, your primary, no. not because they want your candidate um, you know, to win, but because they, they, they want to try to maybe vote for his challenger in the in the primary his or her challenger well you know and i think um, they, i think they should i mean missouri uh where i'm living right now is the same i suppose then as south carolina where um we have uh i guess what they would call semi-open primaries and i voted in primaries before where you walk in and they say well do you want a democratic ballot or do you want a republican ballot and i say i want to have both i mean i'm paying for both of them uh, right to run their primaries right i want to have both because you know i i i I typically vote, uh, given one or the other, I'll typically vote uh, Democratic, but not necessarily, because sometimes there are some good people running on the other side. So, um, you know, I'm tempted to just say, well, you know, give me a Republican uh, ballot, because um, I I live in a heavily gerrymandered district where I know the Republican's going to win, so I might as well try to participate in their primary. But some states, you can't even do that. You have to join the party first, and you may have to join it months before that. So you, you, right. you have to be dedicated to that party in order to vote for it. And that's where you get in these situations where Trump can come in and out-primary somebody and get them out of there and, and replace representatives in these heavily gerrymandered districts with his own people. Well, I think, I think most Americans know at some level, intuitively at least, that, we're, that we have a problem with too much partisanship in this country. Mm-hmm. There were two partisan um, and we're, you know, so divided as a result of that. Well, these uh, these closed primaries obviously add to that. And and most of the time, the party leadership likes the idea of their people having to register as one of them mm-hmm. in order to vote in their primary. But it also builds allegiance. It helps with donations. It you know, it just it it just fosters and furthers and strengthens the partisanship that is causing us so many problems as a nation. So one of the one of the reforms that you just rightly pointed out that hopefully we'll see more and more of in this country is more states going to truly open primaries where voters can choose among the candidates based upon who they want to see win, not who they want to see lose. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, rank, and by the way, ranked choice mm-hmm. voting really would help if that were a part of that. So you weren't limited to just one uh, positive or favorable choice. You could look at the the whole list 
of candidates and pick your your first choice, but also have the option of picking a second or third choice. Yeah. Yeah. Related to that, we actually had um, on this podcast, oh, probably maybe almost a year ago now, we had uh, Catherine Gale, who's who wrote a book with uh, Michael Porter called The uh, Politics Industry. And their great hope for the future was that we not only have open primaries, but we have what's called open top five primaries along with ranked choice voting. And uh-huh. th- the combination of the two, I think, is ultimately good. Uh, Alaska, I, strangely enough, um, I, I used to think they're a real conservative state, but I've been since corrected. They're pretty much um, a strongly independent state. Um, they recently voted for both of those. I think it's open top four, if I'm not mistaken, open top four and ranked choice voting. And like, wow, that's a that's a great idea. I wish you know, more states would jump on board with that. Yeah, Alaska had a, a really a package. Uh, it was a, a piece of uh, legislation that was a, uh, a number of reforms that were very wisely put together. You mm-hmm. know, there wasn't one one or the other, but here are three or four things that work together. And um, I think, you know, that's what the Democrats are trying to do in Congress. Uh, not very artfully, maybe, but they're trying to do that with for the people legislation, yeah. H.R. 1, it's called. Trying to trying to say that reforms work best if you put a package of reforms together that strengthen one another. Because when you do one reform at a time, it can take so long mm-hmm. Uh, to get each one of them passed, let alone implemented, let alone educate the public as to what changes they represent, that um, sometimes it just stalls out because there's so much opposition to it. And these legislatures can be very clever about some. They've done that in Maine with ranked choice voting. The people had to vote for it, I think, three times because they would say they wanted it and the legislature would come up with some clever way to get around it. They'd have to go back and vote on it again. So the package, the package approach makes a lot of sense if you can get the support for it. Yeah. Yeah. They play those games in Missouri here, too. The legislature seems to fight the people uh, more often than not. now, you talked about uh, th- this thing, this phenomenon known as Donald Trump, and, but you also talked about this Frankenstein monster thing. And um, it's interesting because there was, uh, I just happened to read, it was on CNN uh, not too long ago, uh, John Harwood wrote this analysis piece where he cited a uh, article that was in the Washington Post back in 2012. And the article was uh, was written by, let me see, it was Tom Mann of the center-left Brookings Institution and Norm Ornstein of the center-right American Enterprise Institute. And uh, they said, quote, ideologically extreme, scornful of, oh, I'm sorry, let me start over again. Um, the conclusion of their article was they basically said that the GOP had become quote, ideologically extreme, scornful of compromise, unmoved by conventional understanding of facts, evidence, and science, dismissive of, le- of the legitimacy of its political opposition. So I, I think that this, you know, these guys found this way back in 2012 very prescient in a way because it didn't really, I think, come to the forefront until someone like by the name of Donald Trump kind of jumped on this and, uh, I don't know, what did we just say the quiet part out loud? I guess he actually took advantage of this uh, of this Frank of this growing Frankenstein monster and turned it loose. Yeah, well, you know, there's a there's a, a, a saying. I think it's in an ad on TV I've heard recently too. It, it's uh, goes something like, uh, "When the future first arrives, we oftentimes, in fact, usually don't recognize it." 
And mm-hmm. so what's happened to the Republican Party didn't just happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, it didn't happen with Donald Trump. It's been it's been happening through a variety of decisions the party's made, um, a variety of um, decisions to, to look the other way with racist comments and other things that have been going on, you know, starting with the Tea Party and, and lots of other nationalist groups and others. So in many ways, this was inevitable, whether it was Donald Trump or somebody else that was the catalyst to bring it to the crescendo that we saw during the last four years. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a good point there, you know, because I I <clears throat> my wife and I talk a lot about politics, and we talked about Liz Cheney, and um, you know I don't have a lot of sympathy for what happened to her because you know in terms of like being uh, moved out of these key positions that she was in within the uh, House of Representatives, because she was part of a machinery that should have known this was going to happen. Now, you know, she's making a, a, a principled judgment now, for which I think she should, you know, get some credit for that. But um, this is a long time in the making, and it's, uh, I think it's like you say, when a future arrives, nobody's going to recognize it, and maybe she can claim that, that it took her by surprise, but I, I think that the, uh, uh, that the telltale signs have been out there for quite some time now. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree 100%. And, um, you know, the, the good news is that that statement, when the future first arrives, it's very seldom recognized, uh, has a positive slant to it also. And I think you mentioned earlier in our conversation that uh, the millennials and the Generation Zs and these other younger voters are taking a very different approach to uh, what politics can be and what it can do for them mm-hmm. and what it can do for those problems that they're most concerned about. And so I, I, I think we're seeing uh, some real significant changes. I mean, I've been watching Biden, as I'm sure you mm-hmm. and all of our listeners have been watching him. And I heard him today talking about his latest bill on infrastructure, and he had moved the, uh, the dollar figure down mm-hmm. uh, considerably in an effort, in an attempt to compromise with the Republicans on that legislation. Mm-hmm. And in response to a reporter, he said, look, I'm willing to compromise. What I'm not willing to do is to do nothing. Mm. I'm not willing to let the program go, the problem go unaddressed. Mm. Now that, that is kind of a simplified statement, but I think that's what I see more and more younger voters, especially saying they want, They, they don't want necessarily a purist ideological approach to every problem that we face as a nation or even as a planet. They want to see us have elected leaders who actually begin to make progress, who find ways to move forward and to start, if not solving the problem, at least lessening the severity of it. And that's that's a really important shift if that's happening. And I pray to God it is. Yeah, that, that's um, that actually I, I've been an engineer my whole life and designed a lot of things, mainly uh, circuit boards and than uh, into software. And, and there's one concept I've learned fairly painfully over time is that if you wait for perfection, it'll never get built. And so I think what you're saying there is, is you know, it can apply to politics as well. If you take the ideologically uncompromising approach, you'll never get it done. You have to get started somewhere by taking action today. So. I like yeah, that. I mean, the other way to say that, and another, you know, kind of famous saying is don't let perfection 
be the enemy of good. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you see, you know, I hear politicians all the time uh, now still talking about their red lines. You know, I, this is my red line. That's our party's red line. This is that red line. Well, quit talking about red lines and start talking about common ground and, and, and you know, compromise and where you can agree to move forward on solving problems. And quit starting out with your conversation where I've got this red line and you've got that red line because that's a road to nowhere. Yeah, that's true. It's a road to non-compromise, and, and uh, that's true. One other thing I want to touch on before we go to the next thing, though, is um, you pointed out the, uh, the problem with career politicians, and so the Alliance Party has an answer to that, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, policies and topics and issues, and th- those are important, but there are some universal ones, you know, like climate change is a great one. That, that's something that we've got to address, and it's not going to get better without human intervention, because that's what created it, and that's what's ultimately going to solve it. But uh, some of the other things that we're talking about on any given day, they, you know, they move around. They're, mm-hmm. What what priority today may not be the priority six six months from now or even sixty days from now, but um, if we're going to change the system, and that's really what we're talking about—a system that's so dysfunctional that it's uh, causing very great harm, maybe irreparable harm in some ways to our nation and and even beyond—we've got to change the system, and you can't change the system until you start changing some of the people who are responsible for the system and running the system. Mm-hmm. And we've got to start electing a different type of elected official, a public servant, certainly not a career politician, which we were talking about a minute ago. Mm-hmm. And what the, what the Alliance Party has said is that we're looking for the kinds of people who are motivated by public service, not by having a 30 or 40 year career in politics, and are willing to abide by term limits. And at this point, imposed term limits by the party and self-imposed by them as a candidate. But if we can get some of them elected, we think it should be legislatively uh, enforced. In other words, we are required term limits, especially of people who want to be legislators in our state houses and in our Congress, people who want to make decisions about your life, my life, the life of our children and the future of our country. We need to have them there for the right reasons, not just worrying about getting reelected and catering to whatever special interest group it takes, mm-hmm. and whether it's a president or a moneyed group, in order to, to make that happen. So, yeah, that, it's, it's not a silver bullet. There's other things that have to be done. It goes back to the discussion about a package again. It can't be one thing. But attracting a different type of person who's motivated for different reasons to run for and to serve in an elected office is absolutely critical. We've got to make that happen. And uh, I think our approach is the important first step for doing that. The other thing that's a bigger part of that, as big as term limits, is transparency. And we require our candidates who are running for these legislative offices, in addition to 12 years maximum and any combination of those offices for term limits, we also require them to put their tax returns from the most recent three years um, on their public campaign website uh, when they're running, while they're running for office during their campaign. So that's not all that needs to happen, but that is a game changer, that kind of transparency and that kind of commitment to public service. Yeah. Well, I, I, I completely agree with that. I, I think it's a great idea. The, uh, we, we put term limits on some of our executive positions in this country, including the president, 
we don't have term limits on any of the uh, lawmakers out there. So the party does it on its own, a 12 years uh, term limit on any, I guess it's any legislative position right? or, or any position at all. I, is that correct? And legislative. And legislative. Any legislative. Okay. Yeah, we, we exempt, we exempt um, uh, governors and we exempt uh, presidents. Okay. So if you had somebody who served for a combination of 12 years in legislative roles, maybe you know, maybe six years in a state legislature and then moved up to Congress for six years, either as a one-term senator or a couple of terms in the House. And they decided they run, wanted to run for governor. It would not preclude them doing that. And then if after or before that, they decided to run for president. It would not preclude, preclude that. Okay. We recognize that every once in a while, it doesn't happen often, you really get you know, that transformational leader, and we want that person to be able to continue to run for those highest offices. Yeah. But 12 years, you know, two years more than a decade, that's enough time. That's enough time to go in and make a difference. And then if you still want to help your community, your state, or your nation, you don't have to stay in political office to do that. There are lots of ways you can do that as a, as a, as a you know, a servant, uh, sure. as a volunteer, you can start a foundation, a charity. There's, there's a million ways sure. to take that 12 years of experience and make contributions. Yeah. I mean, if, if public service is truly in your heart, then, um, yeah, sign up for it then and say, okay, put put your name out there and say 12 years is my limit. And uh, the, the tax returns for the past three years, a uh, great step toward the uh, direction of transparency. I like that. I'd like, I'd like to move on to uh, journalism, because one of the things that I've been noticing uh, recently is uh, journalism seems to become part of the political equation these days. And uh, when I look at, at the media in general, I see a lot of consolidation, uh, commercialization, and those two alone, I believe, account for a lot of the loss of trust, uh, loss of, uh, of non-biased coverage, and tragically, a loss of local news coverage, you know, in, in printed and in, in uh, radio and TV. And I believe this has a real problem because the fourth estate is such an integral part of our democracy that I don't believe we can afford compromise in the area. Yet here we are. We see news organizations that are completely untethered from reality and and they're framing opinion as news. And uh, I was recently looking at this isn't just a U.S. issue. Apparently, this is taking place up in Canada, too. When it comes to uh, the recent conflict in Israel, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, there was a group of more than 2,000 signatories on an open letter signed mostly by journalists. And it was, it was started up in Canada, but it's also been signed by a significant number of Americans uh, that uh, this open letter was regarding their concerns over news coverage of, the, uh, of this conflict, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict specifically citing the lack of nuanced media coverage of forced expulsions and indiscriminate airstrikes over the last several days, and The Intercept, which is another award-winning award-winning news organization, in an article that they, that they released on May 20th, said that to date, at least three of the journalists who signed that open letter were subsequently taking, taken off of reporting on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So, to me, this is what they're. I guess what they're saying is that there is the the reporters feel there's unbiased. I mean, there, there's biased reporting that they are being limited by their 
editors in covering certain issues. In this case here, they feel that the issues are uh, in, in covering the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. They're covering the Israeli side pretty well, I guess, but not the Palestinian side. So what's happening right. with, with the fourth estate here? Is, and don't you feel this is a, a big threat to our democracy? Well, yes, I do. And as you point out, Dan, um, we see a general loss of trust and confidence in many of our institutions and that we've in the past, um, you know, sort of counted on to provide stability and to provide support for our democracy and for our nation. Um, and certainly the media and journalism in general is suffering from that too. I think part of it is a lack of accountability. There, there are many people who are operating under the guise of being quote unquote journalists who are not journalists. I mean, they're, mm -hmm. they're um, advocates. They, you know, they're propagandists. They, they're right. driven not only by ideology. In fact, in many cases, I don't suspect it is ideology. I think it's purely profit. Mm -hmm. Just as career politicians try to cater to their base to get reelected, these for-profit media outlets cater to their base, their consumer base, their eyeballs, uh, their advertisers, um, and they give them what they want in order to, to keep them. They also are careful not to violate the sacred cows of that base. And you were talking about that a, a minute ago with, with the Israeli issue. Mm -hmm. um, the United States in general, uh, for a number of decades, has been with both Republican and Democratic um, administrations with a few subtle differences, but for the most part has been strongly pro-Israel come hell or high water, no mm -hmm. matter what they do. Yeah. And you know, that's because that's a very powerful political and financial lobby in this country. And the media understands that and politicians of both parties understand that. So, um, there's a lack of accountability and any repercussions for the biases you're talking about. And so there's, you know, my heroes when I, you know, I, I, I put true journalists kind of on a pedestal, maybe romantically, maybe they don't deserve it. But many of my heroes have been journalists who have, you know, broken stories and, and helped us see corruption that never would have been uncovered or discovered without them. Yeah. And in some cases, they were courageous and, and brave and did all kinds of things in order to do that. Um, that is increasingly the exception, not the rule, mm -hmm. uh, with, with people who are working as a profession in what we now call the media. There still are some journalists, thank God, but um, mm -hmm. more and more we just find people who are making a lot of money, uh, just like a career politician does. And if you see them, if they're very successful, they have their own following. People who come to them to hear what they want to hear, and they stick with them for years, if not decades, and these people become very wealthy. And the truth and facts have very little to do with that success. Yeah. Well, they used to have something in this country called the Fairness Doctrine, which I believe came out of the uh, mid part of the 20th century when radio and TV started to proliferate throughout, and there used to be deals with the government, the, the uh, FCC specifically, regarding um, the fact that you're using a common media, which was the airwaves, which is owned by everybody. And so the understanding there was that uh, if you are going to make money off of this media and you're using this publicly owned media, 
then you have to serve the public. And there were other, there were, there were a number of rules that were made. One of them was you had to have at least one hour a day devoted to news. But the other one was this concept of the fairness doctrine, which basically says that you have to provide equal airtime to opposing views. And I believe, and your memory may be better than mine in this area, but I believe in the 1980s under the Reagan administration, this fairness doctrine was pretty much just thrown out the window, and we've never had anything like that since. No, we don't. And, you know, language is such a powerful tool for good or evil. But, um, you know, the fairness doctrine, you would think the word fairness would be unassailable. Mm -hmm. But the critics of that use other terms like political correctness. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, you know, well, wait a minute. You're just being politically correct because you want to show this side or that side in addition to the the reports you're doing about about the issue. So, um, you know, they did the same thing with the estate tax, which was a way to, you know, to tax and uh, accumulated wealth over generations. And they they called it the death tax. And all mm-hmm. of a sudden it was, you know, so yeah. so language is very powerful. And that happened um, in the media. And, um, you know, it, there's so many there's so many issues related to it. One of them is we've got to do a better job. And I think, you know, me, I have an, a background in education. But we've got to do a better job with our um, our citizens in terms of them being more literate and more analytical yeah. and, frankly, um, less naive about the information they receive, whether it's through the Internet or whether it's on television or radio or newspapers. And we've just got so many people now that just take at face value anything that's given them, if it's from a media outlet that they've already elected to use as their sole source of information. Yeah. Well, (laughs) there's so many things I could say about that. Uh, One thing about, you talk about words and and, uh, the power of words and then training people to be more critical. Oftentimes I hear some of these arguments being presented with uh, preface with the word if, right? They'll say, if A, then B. So, but people don't, they forget about the if part and they just think that they take that as, as, as for granted and then they'll start uh, an entire uh, thread of conversation based upon the assumption that A is true when in the very beginning they preface the whole thing with if, you know? And this is one yep. of those word tricks that people get away with and sometimes they even forget about putting the word if in front of it. But I, I often see that people will say, well, my goodness, if uh, if climate change is true, then we're all doomed. And like, no, it's not necessarily the case that we're doomed. Uh, but yeah, that's a very poor example, actually. But I think you get where I'm, where I'm going with that. Um, no, I agree. I agree. It, it, it takes it takes a sophisticated listener but also someone who is sophisticated enough to think through the cause and effect of the statements they're hearing or reading and then make a decision about whether they want to accept it and then internalize it. And we just have too many consumers of media that, that don't do that. Yeah. Well, in a sense, there's almost too much media, too, because if you don't like one channel, you've got a thousand others to choose from. So find the one that's that's resonating with you and then tune into that alone and forget about everything else. You know, everybody else is lying to you. We're, we're the ones that are telling you the truth. So that's, uh, that's, well, an that's, issue. that's part of the education process. You know, it, it's sort of like someone who's saying, you know, I, I look at life. I do. And I know you well enough to know you do. I look at life as a smorgasbord and I want, I want variety. 
I want to hear different opinions and, and uh, mm-hmm. approaches to problems. I'm not going to spend my whole life on the smorgasbord at one end, just eating roast beef and not not taste, you know not tasting anything else. Yeah. Um, if we could get our our media consumers, our information consumers, to to have that same philosophy about getting information about topics, issues, and problems, that they want to hear lots of different sources and have the skills to weigh them and evaluate them and draw their own conclusions. And that would be a huge step forward. And it would also begin to start to hold the media more accountable because they would stop going to those those sources that they start to understand need to be discounted because they're not reliable or they're not based on fact. Yeah. Well, certainly the government uh, via the uh, Fairness Doctrine is not going to do it, so it's up to each individual person to do it. Um, what exactly, this is kind of off topic a little bit, but you mentioned um, different words there. You mentioned the, fair, uh, the, the um, we talked about the Fairness uh, Doctrine, and you got, you got into words like, you know, death, uh, was that death panels or something like that? Well, actually, that was another word that was used. Death panels was... Death, death ta- re- yeah, death taxes. Oh, death taxes, right, yeah. And, um, but I, I wrote down death panels for some reason, because that was another one, big, big word that was well, being used. That was another one, yeah, yeah. for, uh, for uh, uh, Med- uh, Medicare for All. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is really bizarre, because um, I've dealt with uh, medical issues with insurance companies enough to know that they have their own death panels, and they make decisions <laughs> on what goes on in your medical treatment, uh, whether or not, you know, they make decisions whether or not you need a certain surgery, and... Uh, you can't help thinking that, um, yeah, I mean, I know they're staffed by people with good intentions, but they're also a business, too. So that has to be taken into consideration. But what is uh, what is cancel culture? That's another one that's kind of just when I think I understand what it means, it's, it seems to escape me. Is it is it really is it a real thing? I mean, this you hear it a lot coming from the right. You're saying, oh, you know, we're, we're being canceled out. But then they in turn try to cancel out Liz Cheney. So. I don't understand, you know, am I, is it just me or is, am I the only one that's confused about this? What is your opinion on that? No, I think you're, I think you're as confused as most people who are paying attention are confused with how that term's being used. It's sort of a weapon of choice, at, you know, of the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, what I thought it meant when I first heard it, but I've heard it used, you know, so many different ways now. But when I first heard it, I thought it meant, well, you you decide what things you don't agree with, and then you just ignore them. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the Quakers used to have a a, a way they uh, disciplined people it was called shunning. Mm-hmm. You know, you if you met somebody you didn't agree with or who acted inappropriately, everybody just shunned that person. Well, that's kind of another way of saying you cancel it. You just you don't acknowledge it. You don't recognize it. Hmm. You don't. Uh, you don't. You know. You don't regard it as legitimate. But hmm. I think now it, it is just used as part of a person's argument for their side on an issue. And if you disagree, then you're part of the cancel culture because you're disagreeing with them or with the group they represent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always thought it was it was used most by people that feel that or they want to at least give you the impression that they're being a victim. And that they're being unfairly yeah. canceled because they're saying something obnoxious, and so I'm going to ignore it anyways. So, um, let's go to climate change. You mentioned that, that briefly earlier. Um, 
I, I keep thinking about storms and floods and fires, and now we have this iceberg that just broke off of uh, the Antarctic shelf. Uh, it's about the size of Rhode yeah. Island, I understand. Um, yeah. This is, I, I'm beginning to believe that we're, we're in an irreversible process at this point. I think we can mitigate it. That's just my own feeling. I'm not really basing that on any science, but just from my uh, experience with nature in general, that if you make a correction, it may take a while, but eventually it'll take hold. But this is going to take a while before we get through this whole thing. And yet you have people that are screaming, you know, we're going to lose jobs if we don't uh, shovel coal into our boilers. And um, But does it? it's being presented as an economy versus ecology sort of thing. I, What's your take on that? Because I always felt that you know we can we can build a green society and make money off of it, couldn't we? Or is there a way of doing that? Do you think? I, I, I honestly and totally believe that's the case. We've done it before. We did it with all kinds of technological revolutions, where the uh, the part of the industry that was being replaced, uh, understandably, uh, you know, fought it because it meant job loss is short-term and if it's your job and your livelihood short-term doesn't give you any solace so there's a way to do this but government has to be a part of the transition it has to um, educate and retrain people for the new jobs that will be created by the changes that are being talked about and um, we know the world is going to start competing it already has with electric vehicles and sustainable mm -hmm. energy approaches and why wouldn't we want the United States to be the leader in that and the exporter of that to other nations who also need it? Because obviously this is not just like the pandemic. It isn't something we can solve as an individual country or nation. It has to be a you know, a global effort. But, yeah, I mean, there's no reason why the United States cannot be the leader and, and benefit not just as a part of the global community with climate change, but to benefit economically by being an exporter of these new technologies and these new approaches that create jobs here. Yeah. yeah that's why I feel we might be missing the boat because other countries are, are going to take that position uh, of, of being the leader. And you know, if you want to believe that America can lead on this, and we have been the leader in the past and similar technologies, um, we may be missing the boat by not, uh, by not jumping on this thing and uh, running with it. Um, you know, Dan, uh -huh. if, if your listeners have been to our website, <clears throat> and if they haven't been recently, I encourage them to do that, theallianceparty.com. We talk about a, a concept called the gold medal nation, mm -hmm. which is what you just referenced. That you know, the United States, and you think about the Olympics, we've striven to be, and we have been on a number of occasions in, in a not very distant past, the very best at the at things that really mattered the most. You know, we were the very best at one time in education. That's no longer the case. Um, we were the very best in terms of economic mobility, that if you were born into poverty, you had a great chance in this country to still realize the American dream and, and work your way out of it. That's no longer the case. We're now down in the middle or sometimes lower than that when ranked up against other nations. The same thing should be true of, of the climate change, economic um, transitions, that you and I are now talking about. The United States should be the very best example in the world. Not only should we have the cleanest air and the cleanest water and, and the most protected natural resources, but we ought to have the most vibrant economy that has made that possible and show other nations how they can do it also. 
And if we don't have that gold medal mentality, we were going to settle for, you know, um, silver or bronze. Um, who else in this on this planet? We're going to let China be the gold medal nation right. or, or Russia. Or, I mean, who's going to do it as well as the United States could do it and should do it? Yeah, no, I agree. And that's uh, the uh, website there is theallianceparty.com. And if you want to see the manifesto that uh, that you're talking about, the uh, gold medal nation uh, manifesto, uh, that's at theallianceparty.com slash manifesto. Um, so I wanted to switch. Uh, we're getting we're getting uh, toward the end of our time here, but I, I did want to talk a little bit about the COVID response that our government has had and how the CDC uh, appears to me anyways that they have allowed the message to get away from them for various different reasons. Uh, there's... Uh, if you're not vaccinated at this point, they want you to wear your mask. But if you are vaccinated, uh, they say you can take your mask off. But then there's this thing, uh, I don't know about other states, but in Missouri here, the legislature in their infinite wisdom uh, does not allow you to ask somebody whether or not they've been vaccinated. So uh, my wife and I, for example, we went to the gym the other day and they said, you no longer have to wear your mask. And I says, great. Well, we've been vaccinated. They said, yeah, but we can't ask you that. I look around, nobody else is wearing a mask. I figured, well, okay, that's fine. We've been vaccinated. We've, it's been two weeks uh, plus since we've been vaccinated. Uh, actually, I felt kind of naked going out there without my mask on, but it was a, it was a whole different experience because working out with a mask on, especially, you know, with, with cardio stuff, it's really, really hard to do. Um, but do you think that overall that the, that the CDC has been clear in this issue of masks, no masks, and, and how to, you know, keep society in line and, and to answer all the criticisms that have been coming back to them? Well, they've made mistakes. There's no doubt about that. And it kind of goes back to our much earlier discussion about perfect versus good. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is brand new. Nobody's ever dealt with this before. Um, you know, how do you get a population in a society in a democracy like ours to respond to government direction let alone government mandates it's a whole different set of issues in a country like china or mm -hmm. russia and so i think they did some things well um i think with the mass they were so intent and I, this is my conjecture mm -hmm. they were so intent on trying to encourage those citizens who are reticent to to get vaccinated they were looking for um, benefits. Mm -hmm. You know, if you if you've been vaccinated, here's what you don't have to do anymore. Get your freedom uh, back. Your mask. Yeah. 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 So you know, these are the perks that should hopefully incentivize you to go ahead and get to get vaccinated. You you would hope that concern about your fellow citizens and concern for yourself and your family would be enough cause to, <laughs> to, to get, get vaccinated. vaccinated. Yeah. Exactly. But, you know, now they're, you know, they have they're having lotteries or giving away things or doing all kinds of things trying to get people to voluntarily become vaccinated. And I think the CDC got caught up in that, which really did make the messaging um, very muffled and confusing. Yeah. Well, I think education has a lot to do with it, too, going back to education, because I believe that there is a anti-intellectual sort of. Uh, movement taking place in this country, and particularly anti-science. And being trained as an engineer myself, I've um, 
had to you know, study a lot of science and realize that you know, science is, from an academic perspective, is not an exact thing by definition. It is a, it is a journey of discovery. So when you, when you have a new virus that uh, descends upon the scene, you, I think an educated person who understands science would understand that, okay, they're not going to get it right right away. We don't really know what we're dealing with. So, you know, maybe, you know, they're saying let's not wear the masks at first. And then later on they said, well, wait a minute. Now we're seeing that, you know, the nature of this virus that we're studying now realize now that it is airborne. So we need to start masking up. And I didn't have a problem with that, but I can see a lot of people that don't really understand how science works would have an issue with that. But I think, again, education yeah, is, is the key here. Well, I think it goes back to our earlier discussion about our, you know, our political rhetoric, the media. I think people are looking for absolutes. Mm-hmm. And, and as soon as and you, and you don't have absolutes in, in life in general, and you certainly don't in science because it's a scientific method, as you well know, which is partly trial and error. You, yeah. you, you make an educated guess. You gather the data that's available and you do what you think is the best response. And then based upon new data coming in, you adjust, you mm-hmm. make changes. And, um, you know, that there is no other approach that will work in the long run. I mean, you can flip a coin, I guess, and say, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And half the time you'd be right. But that's not the scientific method. Right. Right. And that's that's, I think, what what people really need to understand and I, what what um, getting back to education again, which sort of depresses me is the fact that there is this anti-intellectual movement in this country that um, I don't believe it's necessarily that the human species itself is anti-intellectual, but it manifests that way sometimes when it doesn't fit into some sort of um, uh, political framework that, that you believe in. So, um, I mean, this gets into like psychological defense mechanisms, which I was reading about the other day, uh, which was put forward by, by uh, Sigmund Freud. One of the big things is denial, right? And, and repression, you know, you're gonna repress the evidence. I'm gonna deny that it exists. So uh, when they say, hey, I need to mask up, uh, it isn't really that big of a deal. I'm, I'm, it's, it's such a horrible thing that we're talking about here. These intellectuals must be wrong. I'm going to deny it. I'm going to repress it. Um, you know, there's, all, there's a whole different range of, ex, of, of experiences that emotions that you go through in these situations. But it sort of surprises me is that this wasn't anticipated at some level, that people would respond like this. I'm, I'm, I'm floored. And I think people are going to cover this, uh, this COVID virus for another 100 years. People are going to be talking about how we responded to this and, and how we were largely, uh, I think, largely cooperative, but um, not completely. And in the areas that are not complete, it was really a breakdown of trust, I believe, is what really yep. happened. Yeah, trust. Trust in institutions, trust in government, trust in politics and politicians, um, mistrust in uh in quote-unquote expertise because people that felt talked down to at times and they felt misled because there was a change in policy and you know they were supposed to know better because they were the so-called experts um i think human nature as you just pointed to with freud and others you know we don't like uncertainty uh, especially in, in matters that are important to us uh, we don't like discomfort in general we want to feel comfortable uh, with people who are with around us and we want to, you know, fit in. You, you, they should have anticipated 
some of that, but I think a lot of these scientists, and it probably could say this is true of engineers as a group and academics as a group, you know, we're in a bit of a bubble. Mm-hmm. And so we have these rational discussions about the way forward, and everybody in the room would agree. Well, everybody in that room had a certain set of biases and shared experiences that kept them from seeing how a lot of other Americans were going to view that and react to it. So we need to have, and this goes back to politics too, we need to have more diversity at the table in terms of anticipating problems, looking at problems, different viewpoints. Um, When you get too much uh, homogeneity in a group, you're bound to make mistakes that could have been avoided. Hmm. Well put. I like that. Yeah, well, regarding the breakdown of trust, too, I think that there are politicians out there who find it politically expedient to um, break down trust of the government of which they are a part. Most famously, I think it was Ronald Reagan in his inaugural speech back in, uh, what was that, 1981, I believe, where he said the government isn't the solution to the problem, government is the problem, and that... It, it, it was it was kind of hard for me to hear that. I was a young man when I heard that, and I'd actually voted for him. It was the first time I ever voted. I voted for the guy. and But I heard that, and it just kind of stuck with me throughout the years. It's like, wait a minute. You are the president. You are the head of our government. What are you saying? You know, Why would you say something like that? But I think that that— Well, and, that, I, and I can yeah. see that statement maybe mm-hmm. having some, some real merit in a, in a uh, you know, autocratic uh, country. Mm-hmm. But our government is us. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We we pick our government. We we have our representatives who are chosen by us to do what's best for the common good. So to say you can't trust government is to say we can't trust ourselves. Yeah. Well, especially when the politicians themselves say it, I say, well, <laughs> that's kind of <laughs> running against your own best interest, isn't it? You want us to not yeah, trust you. Job. Pick another yeah. profession if you don't believe that. Yeah, exactly. And 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 trust is one of those things I find that's uh, really hard to build up, but extremely easy to lose. And so it's going to take a long time to build trust uh, back into the government again. But it has to start. And I think you know the you mentioned the younger generation earlier. Um, I think they they approach our society and our government these days with hopeful eyes, and. I have to be a little bit cautious because I think the same thing sort of happened back in the 1960s with the peace movement and so on, which I think kind of got, um, I don't know, I'm as young, I was very young at that point, but it seems to me it sort of got derailed in a way and um, hopefully it doesn't happen again. I'm very, very hopeful that it, that it turns out good. Um, well, we're coming uh, up at the end of our yeah. time. Oh, go ahead, Jim. I'll just make one comment about that. You know, the generational, um, and those of, those of us who have lived for a while have seen exactly what you just described, Dan. Idealistic uh, young people who believe the world can be a better place, and then over time, you know, becoming more critical, maybe even more cynical. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a lot of people predict that's going to happen to this younger generation also when they deal with the quote-unquote realities of life and parenthood mm-hmm. and jobs and all that stuff. Um but, but that's the reason why it's so important to make systemic changes. Like we talked about earlier, a different approach to politics, a, a different way to encourage voting, problem solving, attracting a different type of person to run for office. If, if you 
base all your hope on this on the fact that somehow this group of people is going to be different than the groups of people who preceded them, or this generation is going to be different than the generation that I came from, <clears throat> without changing the system, mm-hmm. you're probably going to ultimately be at least somewhat disappointed. So we've got to make these systematic, these systemic reforms that we've been talking about so that the good intentions, you know, the good angels we talk about versus our, our bad angels, that the good angels can win more often than lose. And right now the system is set up so the good angels lose far too often. Yeah. That's, um, and we talked about uh, the politics industry, the book by uh, Catherine Gale and Michael Porter. Uh, one of the things they talk about in there is in order to fix the system, you have to change the system. And and I, I think you took it one step further a while ago when you talked about in order to change the system, you have to change the people. And that gets right back to the Alliance Party when we talk about having a more principled type of person running for office, but also, you know, the term limit uh, implementation and, you know, the, 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 the transparent, the, the, the dedication toward transparency, especially as it's rendered out through our, you know, last past three years of our tax returns for anybody that runs for office. Um, this is this is key, I think. And this is where I th- I'm very hopeful, hopeful about the Alliance Party, very hopeful about the new generation. If we can make these systemic changes, um, it's going to put us on a good path, I feel. Well, it's important to do more than just talk about what mm-hmm. we, the principles and honesty and, you know, public service versus careers and politics. All the parties talk about that to some extent. Mm-hmm. You know, talk is cheap, especially in politics. So that's why the acid tests, you know, holding people to a 12-year maximum in the combination of legislative offices, requiring tax returns to be publicly shared with their constituents before uh, the vote is taken. That's how you determine. I mean, we've lost a lot of candidates, frankly. We've lost people who wanted to run under the Alliance Party but felt uncomfortable not talking about these things. How can anybody can talk about it? Jim, I think you just got cut off here. I'm going to call him back real quick. Hey, Dan, I don't know what happened there. Yeah, no, it was, you're right in the middle of making a great point. (laughs) So. uh, That happens. That happens at my house all the time. Yeah, yeah, it happens to me quite a bit too. But, but I like what you're saying. It, it, it basically, it's, it's more than talk. It's about taking action and, that, right. And you emphasized that earlier as well. It's got to be taking action. And the younger generation, I believe, has that concept in mind. And that, that's, that's a, good, that's a good, uh, good sign for me, a good sign of hope for me. Well, I'd, I'd love to talk to you more. I know you have to get off to another meeting pretty soon. And um, we're coming up on, uh, I think we actually surpassed an hour here by a few minutes. But, um, uh, Jim, I... Uh, Really appreciate you stopping by and, and chatting with us again this week. Dan, I always enjoy talking with you. I always learn a lot in our discussions and our conversations. And I want to thank you on behalf of uh, all of us who have been working with the Alliance Party and the new choice that we're creating. I want to thank you for all the hard work and effort you've put into this podcast. It's, uh, it's one of the highlights of my week to listen to it, and I hope uh, more and more people will join in. Oh, it's always my pleasure to do this. This is this is fun to do. It's uh, I feel it's important, and um, 
And ultimately, I think it'll make a difference too. So this is, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm right where I need to be at this point. Anyways, we've you been, are, I agree. good. Well, we've been talking with Jim Rex, the Alliance Party's National Chair Emeritus. Um, again, Jim, uh, good luck over the next uh, week. And I guess you have another meeting coming up. So good luck in that meeting as well. Thank you, Dan. I enjoyed it. And thank you for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any new episodes. Each week we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. If you enjoyed listening to today's podcast and would like to get involved in the Alliance Party, please see our website at www.theallianceparty.com. As we expand the party, we need your involvement. Democracy is not a spectator sport. Donations and volunteers are always welcome. If you'd like to contact us at the Alliance Party After Dark, drop us an email at podcast at theallianceparty.com. Also, see our Twitter page at Alliance on Air. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for this evening's edition of the Alliance Party After Dark. And on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you.